you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? Who has left the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Surely you know. And Father, as we uh, acknowledge your greatness and holiness and uh, acknowledge, Lord, how you are so far above us in holiness and grandeur, uh, it does move us, Father, to bow before you. Uh, Lord, in, in humble adoration, thanking you so much for the gift of your Son that brings us into your presence. Oh, Father, I pray now that as you've revealed yourself to us in your word, that you'd speak to us again and again, drawing us to the Savior, uniting us in Christ as a body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to read from verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll read from verse 12. <clears throat> For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And may God bless the reading of his word. As we continue to look at these four metaphors in the New Testament regarding the church and how the church is described, we'll wrap up the metaphor of the body this morning, and then over the next few weeks, we'll continue to look at the church as a family, the church is a building, and then the church is a kingdom. We've already seen in the last couple weeks that from Ephesians 4, that God has prescribed the way the church is to function as a body by leaders equipping the saints, equipping those in the congregation for works of service, to minister and to serve one another in the capacities that God has given you. And this equipping is to build unity among the congregation, 
It's for the congregation to gain more knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for us to mature and grow together, and it's for eventually to conform us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus. So every Sunday is Equipping Sunday, and every Sunday is Perfecting Sunday, and every Sunday is our gathering to complete us more and more into the body of Christ. The, uh, and, and as we gather, as we follow Paul's instruction, we will, in fact, grow in breadth and grow in depth. And when any of us, we found, begin to waver from the instruction that we've been given from God's word, when we begin to deviate from the truth, both in our doctrine and in our practice, in our faith or our belief, we are to speak the truth in love not about one another, but to one another. And that also keeps us from being children. It keeps us from being blown about by every wind of doctrine. And when we help one another remain true and remain faithful to God's word, this is how we grow up as a body. It's how we mature. This is at least part of how the body is to function the way God would in fact have us function. And as we interact with one another, as we serve one another, the way God will require us, then the body will grow. We all, you all, all believing Christians have a place in the body of Christ. God's given us gifts and talents and desires. And no matter who you are, if you're a believing Christian, God has put you in the church. And he wants you to function just like one of your joints or one of your ligaments functions in your own body. And the proper working of every believer working as God would have him or her is what causes the growth of the body to build up itself in love. That was pretty much what we heard from Ephesians 4. And as I said last week, it's, it's almost formulaic. I don't want to make it too simple. But if we do A, B, C, and D the way God has commanded us, then he promises that E, the growth of the body in depth and breadth, is virtually automatic. Now, as we approach another passage where Paul has used the metaphor of the body of Christ or body for the body of Christ, we're going to be equally insightful as we look today at Ephesians at 1 Corinthians 12. And I'm just going to divide this up into four simple categories. Number one, members of the body are united by the spirit. Members of the body are united by the spirit. Secondly, we're going to find that members of the body are important. Members of the body are important. Thirdly, members of the body are God's design, are God's design. And then finally, members of the body or the church are one. So we'll first look at we're united by the spirit. Secondly, all members are important. Thirdly, all members are by God's design. And then finally, as members, we're all one. Pretty straightforward. We're going to follow the line that Paul writes out in right in the passage. But notice first that all members of the body of Christ are united by the Spirit, which immediately indicates that the Spirit of God resides in every member of the body of Christ. So to be a member of the body of Christ, you must be a believing Christian. Now, I've said this before, and I want to keep saying it, is salvation is the work of all three persons in the Godhead. It's the Father who draws us and calls us and he's the one who administrates our salvation. 
We know it's the son who has lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and rose from the dead. And through his finished work, he accomplishes our salvation. But along with that, it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who guarantees our salvation by regenerating our hard hearts, by filling us, by dwelling in us, and by sealing us until the day we enter into heaven or his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.21 says this, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And listen to this. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit in us is God's seal upon us that we belong to God through Christ. And that word guarantee can be translated uh, down payment. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside a believer is the down payment that ensures our place in heaven. When you put a down payment on a house, it's, it's yours until you pay it off. And when you receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit, when you trust Christ alone to save you from your sin, then you are guaranteed that Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 12 and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Now, we're going to walk through this again because having a good understanding of salvation is so important for us to understand how the church is supposed to function. So for some of you, this might be review, well-worn territory, but it's always good to go down it again. We're going to pick it up in midstream as Paul talks about the work of the Spirit in the life of believers. So we're in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the person Paul's describing here has his mind set on the flesh, who does not submit to God's law, and clearly this person is not a Christian. He's describing the state that all of us were born into. We're born separated from God. We're born at enmity with God. We're born alienated from God. And as Paul states, we're born hostile toward God. And that person who is not a believing Christian cannot please God. And notice in verse 9 that he speaks to those who are in the church, the body of Christ. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, that is a very large and very looming if, isn't it? The confirmation that a person is a believing Christian is the fact that the spirit of God dwells in him or her. And we know this is exactly what Paul's saying because of the next sentence. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So where does that put you this morning as you reflect on this particular verse? Do you have the Spirit of Christ residing in you? And do you belong to God? Because if you don't have the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit 
residing in you, then you do not belong to God. You don't belong to Jesus Christ. You're, you're, Paul was saying that we're not Christian believers, meaning we're not converted. And even if a person comes to church every Sunday, you're not a member of the body of Christ unless you are possessed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ is not a member of the true church. So if it's true that, quote, if the Spirit of God does not dwell in a person, they're not a Christian, then the big question is, how do I know if the Spirit of God resides in me? Now, that's a wonderful question. And it's, it's, a, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves by way of self-examination because Paul encourages us in more than one passage that we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So this is always a good question because our profession, just saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, Jesus is in my heart, it, it doesn't mean a thing if we've never been converted. According to more than one poll, 65 to 75 percent of Americans would answer yes to the question, are you a Christian? 65 to 75 percent. I wonder how many have the spirit of Christ dwelling in them. Now, let me give you a few concrete evidences from Scripture. I'm going to have to put this more in list form. There's room for further explanation and further conversation. I'm just going to give four evidences from the Bible that will help us examine ourselves in these areas. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit gives a believer a hunger for God's word that did not exist prior to your conversion. When the Spirit of God resides in you, you will, according to 1 Peter 2, long for the pure milk of the word. You'll have a desire to know Christ, your Savior, a desire that you've never had before. You have an appetite for the word that you didn't have before. You have an understanding of the word that you never had before. And it's the spirit that leads you into all truth. So first and foremost, there'll be a new hunger for God's word. Secondly, there'll be a heightened sense of sin. Before you became a Christian, you may or may not have had uh, twinges, I'll say, of guilt for certain actions. You had a moral conscience that you were born with. John tells us, however, in John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And once you become a believing Christian and the Holy Spirit resides in you, sinful actions that used to come easily now should cause guilt and shame and sorrow and regret and misery which will in turn move you to keep shorter sin accounts. So when you do sin against God, you'll confess it to him. And when you do sin against others, it's the Holy Spirit that moves you to repent and to confess to God and then restore your relationships with those you sinned against. If, if honestly, if you're able to behave in a totally unchristlike manner if you're known for being angry and hateful and rebellious and full of strife and impure and lie and a liar and you have no sorrow 
and no grief and no guilt. There's good reason to believe you do not have the spirit of Christ living in you. There's good reason to believe you don't understand salvation because the spirit produces a, a heightened sense of, of conviction of sin. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit will give you a, a, a new love that you never had before for, for Christians and the church or the body of Christ. 1 John 3, 14, we know we've passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, clearly this doesn't mean that you're going to have a mushy, gushy feelings for every Christian. I don't want you to feel bad, but I don't have mushy, gushy feelings for, for, for every Christian I've ever met. The kind of love that's mentioned here is demonstrated in the action of love from 1 Corinthians 13. The good Samaritan showed love for his neighbor by stopping and taking time out of his schedule, out of his resources to serve someone in need. One commentator writes, evidence of a saved condition is that the person is habitually loving Christians with a love that impels him to deny himself for the benefit of the fellow Christian. Denying himself for the benefit of the other Christian. Prior to becoming a believer, you had no love for God and no love for God's people and no love for the church and you live for yourself. But since the Spirit of God lives in you, as a new creature in Christ, you begin to love what Christ loves. Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. And the natural byproduct of his spirit living in us is that we have this new love for God's people. A new love for his church as well. And then fourth, the Holy Spirit will begin to move you away from the deeds of the flesh and move you toward living out the fruits of the Spirit. We don't have time to turn to Galatians 5, but you can look there for your homework. But instead of participating in immorality and impurity and sensuality and greed and jealousy and anger and division, you'll, by the work of the Spirit in your life, give evidence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience. I mean, we're all sinners, Always a struggle, always a battle, because the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But month by month and year by year and decade by decade, those who know you most should be able to see progress, should be able to see growth, should be able to see that the old self is dying and new self is walking faithfully, should see your progress in the faith. You see, it's on account of the Spirit that you're a new creature in Christ. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it's account on the Holy Spirit residing in a person that he's completely transformed and who therefore belongs to Christ and is now a member of the true church. Now, how did you do on the test? Do you have a hunger for God's word? Are you convicted when you sin? Do you keep shorter sin accounts? Do you love the brethren? Do you love the church? 
but others around you testify that you're growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Not perfection, but growing. Listen, if the, the, the test is pass-fail, there's no curve. If you don't belong to Christ and you're still in your sin and under his judgment and you, and you need to repent and cry out to him to save you, believing in his death and resurrection as the only thing that will save you because without the Holy Spirit, you're not a member of his body, the church. And if anyone has any questions about such a serious, serious portion of scripture, please, I'll be happy to talk to you. But this is what Paul means back in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 when he says, For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Do you see again, as we said before, how corporate this is? How unifying this is? Paul uses the word all twice and the word one twice. All baptized into one body, all made to drink of one spirit. The baptism he's talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's a, it's a singular event that happened when you put your faith and trust in Christ to save you. At that moment, you were, you were immersed in his spirit. At that moment, you were washed by the spirit. You were forgiven. You were a new creature in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And from the time of your conversion, the Holy Spirit resides in you and seals you. This is your entrance into the church. And because the Spirit resides in you and in the people around you, we are now unified. We're one because the Spirit lives in us. Because he controls us. He's the one who's changed us. And he's the one who made all those who are truly believers new creatures in Christ. And this is why Paul is able to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or slave or free. We are one body, many members, different backgrounds, united by the Holy Spirit. Now here in the first century, Paul was saying that those who were slaves and those who were free were still part of one body. It's just amazing to think that in the Roman culture, in the church, that, that a slave could sit next to and sing next to and hear the word next to and serve next to and teach Sunday school next to somebody who was a free man or even his owner because their status in the culture was totally irrelevant in the church as believing Christians. They're now one because the Holy Spirit resides in them. And I've already mentioned before that the, the division between Jew and Greek was far greater than any racial division that you and I have ever been exposed to or experienced. And it was completely broken down because converted people no longer hated each other because the Spirit of God lived in them. They weren't jealous of each other and suspicious of one another. They got to know one another through the Holy Spirit, through Christ. And we have unity because we're all made to drink of the same spirit. It's just another way to show the spirit causes us to be one in Christ. Because again, the moment you became a believing Christian and the spirit resides in you, it works in our hearts 
through his word. So drinking from the same spirit will always bring us unity because the spirit never directs you to do one thing and me to do another. The spirit doesn't teach you one thing and then teach me another because the spirit guides us as believers into all truth. So unity comes because the Spirit leads according to God's word. So as we drink of the Spirit, we symbolically are drinking the same body of truth, and that unifies us even further. So now we've established that to be part of the church, a member of the body of Christ, you must be a believing Christian in whom the Holy Spirit resides. Notice, secondly, from from our passage, that all members of the body of Christ, the church, are important. And Paul uses how our, our bodies function in order to make this point. He first makes it really clear that nobody can say, I am not important. And then he comes right back and says, no one can say, I am too important. He'll be addressing two groups here. Group one, I'm a nobody and nobody needs me. And group two, I am a somebody, and I don't need anybody. Two groups, both in the church. Verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that, wouldn't, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, it doesn't happen very often, but Paul's actually being very funny here. This is actually comical. If you had the option to be a foot or a hand, I mean, which would you choose? I mean, what, is your feet, what do your feet have to contend with? Feet have a tendency to smell. Mine don't, but I have children. I have four children, and I think two of them. If they took their shoes off, you had to send them outside. I don't know what the problem was. It didn't come from my side of the family. Your, your, the skin on your feet gets all dry and cracky. Some of you have bunions like me. I mean, feet look, unfortunately, sometimes hairy and scary. Feet are very unsightly. They have athlete's foot, toenail fungus, corns. They hurt. They support the whole body. They work, they work, they work, and by and large... I mean, feet are completely unseen. Uh, but, but what about your hands? Uh, very visible. Very in front. They wear jewelry. Now, some of you people might wear toe jewelry, but we'll get off that. that okay. They, you, wear, you paint your fingernails. You paint your toenails, too. But the fingernails are right up front, and they take precedence. You're constantly washing your hands, putting lotion on your hands. They're so visible and noticeable. They're the first thing that comes forward before the handshake. Uh, your hands are the, are, are the ones that make the fist pump and the, and the high fives and clap and cheer others on. And, and if your foot or your feet could talk, and mind you, this is comical. Imagine your foot one day just turning around and looking at you and saying, because I'm not a hand, I, I don't belong to the body. What your foot is saying, I have no value. I have no significance. You don't really need me. I mean, look at your hand. 
Now that's something to be proud of. Look how beautiful. Look how cared for. Look how pretty. But me, I'm not part of the body. And then what about the eye and the ear illustration? Now what do you know about ears? Ears are really odd shaped, aren't they? They just, they just stick out on the end of your head. I knew I was preaching on this this morning, and my wife and I were watching something last night, and, th- and there was a guy that had, the, his ears were so far out, I wonder if he had better hearing. He must have had extra sensory hearing because his ears stuck out so far. The um, ears, not only are they interesting and odd, um, along with that, um, No, no one has ever been attracted to anyone because of their ears. When I met Deb 40 years ago, I didn't say, wow, those are the most incredible looking ears I've ever seen. And when you take the time to really think it through, they even connect differently. Some have earlobes that go way down and some curl up. And, and let's, I don't want to talk to you about earwax. There was a time not long ago with my earbuds that I, had, I thought for sure I needed new earbuds. And I, I thought, oh, they don't hear. I was going to go out and spend the money. Well, I looked carefully at it. I don't even want to explain to you what came out of those earbuds. Um, just unsightly. And, and let's not even talk about, as you get older, other things that grow out of your ears. Now, eyes. Eyes. Now, there's a story for you. There are people who fall in love because she took one, he took one look at those eyes. Noticeable. Up front. There are love songs about eyes, but not ears. You can communicate with your eyes. You can show emotion with your eyes. You can encourage people as you laugh with them and as you cry with them with your eyes. You can even change your eye color with contacts now and dress up your eyes, but you can't do that with ears. Now, if your ears could talk, and mind you, this is comical. Imagine your ear with some sort of lips moving and talking and saying to you, you know, Because I'm not an eye, I'm just not part of the body. And what your ear is saying is, I have no value. I'm not significant. I mean, look at those eyes. Boy, those are something to be proud of. They're beautiful. They're stunning. But me, I'm not even a part of the body. Well, in both cases, Paul states to both of these body parts who think they're unimportant for the, role, for the sole reason that their function is just different than others, he says to them, that does not make you less a part of the body. And then he explains why in verse 17. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, I'm told by those who know the Greek language more than I do that when this was read in the Corinthian church, it's very likely that the congregation rolled over and laughed out loud as they imagined a gigantic eyeball rolling down the center of the church building. Or they managed a gigantic ear with two little tiny arms and little tiny feet trying to talk. And by what Paul's saying is that every part of the body has a purpose. Every part of the body has a place. Every part of the body has a function. And it's wrong to say, even for a moment, I have no value in the body of Christ because I am not like so-and-so. 
not supposed to be like so-and-so. God made you you. And if your hands tried to do what your feet do, if your eyes tried to do what your ears do, your body wouldn't work. And even though you may not have as visible as a gift, God is still working for his glory and for your good as you function in the capacity that God made you, you will find fulfillment in the body of Christ without comparing yourself at all to others. So no, we can't say we're not needed. We can't say that we can't help. We can't say that we don't fit. Because God is building his body, building his church, and you, everybody in you who's a believing Christian, is an integral part of it. So just let me implore you to understand that everything that you do for the church, if you're active here, however you're functioning, whether you're shoveling the walks or taking out the trash or praying for a brother and sister in Christ or visiting someone or making a meal or teaching Sunday school or working in the nursery, maintaining the building, keeping the books, opening your home, every part of what you're doing is significant. We are one body, many parts, working together for the glory of God. So Paul first addresses those who feel insignificant in the body, and then he shifts to those who, quite honestly, are way too big for their britches, who actually feel very significant, who feel too important. Notice verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, let me just say it's a sad indictment on those in the body of Christ who are condescending, who are arrogant, who are self-righteous, and have far too much self-importance. And Paul would not have used this as an illustration, if it wasn't in Corinth and if it wasn't in the church at large today, because it still happens. You know, obviously, your eye is a very significant part of the body. But your eye can't say to your hand, I have no need of you. How often do your hands help your eyes? Well, pretty often. I watch Deb every night put eye drops in her eyes from a prescription she has. She does it once a day, I think, at nighttime. Try that without hands. We use our hands as a visor if it's too sunny. We, we protect our, our eyes with our hands. We wipe our tears away with our hands. We put on glasses on our eyes with our hands. And to think for a moment that an eye can talk and say to your hand, I don't need you, is just shocking. Or if the head would say to the feet, I have no need of you, well, equally shocking. I mean, it borders on the total ridiculous because your head is what directs you and moves you and your feet have to follow along. The only way to move in a direction is to put one foot in front of the other. So your feet are absolutely necessary to the head. I've been saying for a long time, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. You must be part of a local church. But once in the local church, you have to live. You have to, to live without or not live with self-importance, with such self-importance that you and your desires are the only ones that matter. You're not to function in the church as if 
you can do what you're doing on your own and you don't need any help at all. You see, all believers in the body of Christ are important. In the earlier illustration, those who think they have nothing to give are very important. And then now, now, you, Mr. Too Big for Your Britches, those who you think are not important are actually very important. So you better change your haughty, self-righteous attitude. In fact, he says, go further than change your attitude. Paul is telling this guy to change his ways. Because instead of telling them how much you don't need them, you better start telling them how valuable they really are. Verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. This is a game changer when it comes to our responses to each other in the body of Christ. He, he divides it up into two parts, the presentable and the unpresentable, or the visible and the not so visible. Now, he doesn't give specific definitions, but, but I think for the presentable, he's speaking about somebody like me who's more upfront and who's more visible. And he really is saying that the individuals in the church who don't have these types of roles, the more presentable roles, more upfront, we are in the greatest danger of saying we don't need anyone. And if you've been around the church for very long, you've seen some in upfront roles who are full of pride and full of self-righteousness and believe something like, I am God's gift to the church. The church needs me. God needs me. You need me. But I really don't need anyone else. FYI, God does not need anyone, especially that guy. And the reason this is a game changer is Paul is challenging us to spend less time giving honor to somebody like me and spend more time bestowing honor on those who serve faithfully in the nursery. Spend more time on giving honor to those who are folding the bulletins, doing the greeting. You see that in verse 22? The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Just amazing. He, he says they seem to be weaker. Some people might think they're weaker, but from God's viewpoint, they are, you are, indispensable. Something indispensable is not weaker. Something indispensable is vital. Beloved, to, to, to build the kingdom, for the church to function, everyone's necessary. Everyone's vital. We appreciate the work that all of you do at our potlucks, the setup and the cleanup and the, and the, and the dishes and the table wiping and ordering napkins and plates. Even those who are the last to turn the lights off. Those who plow, those who mow, take pictures, build a directory, organize meals for funerals. And those who may not serve on Sundays, but who open their homes by having people over for fellowship. We need as a body to thank and affirm all of those individuals as often as possible. 
Paul tells us to affirm there more often. He states, uh, he states that it is on the unpresentable parts or less honorable parts that we're to bestow greater honor and greater modesty. In other words, modesty, it means attractiveness or loveliness. And we're to bestow greater appreciation and greater thanks and gratitude to those who are not up front, who are not so noticeable, who are more behind the scenes and rarely seen. And the reason he gives in verse 24, our more presentable parts do not require it. What he's really saying is this. Instead of Pastor Appreciation Month, why don't we have Nursery Worker Appreciation Month? Instead of Pastor Appreciation Month, why don't we have Snowplow Worker Appreciation Month? Or a greeter? Or a bulletin folder? What that really means is everyone matters. Everyone contributes. Everyone has something to offer. No one in the body is the most important. No one in the body is the most significant. We need to create a culture of thanksgiving and affirmation and giving honor to every servant in the body of Christ. And it's impossible to believe otherwise because of my third point. All members of the body of the church are God's design. Whether you have a more visible role or whether your role is more behind the scenes, the one thing we can say for certain is when God calls you to himself and brought you into his body, his family, his building, his kingdom, he gifted you and he placed you exactly where he wants you to be. Chapter 12, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. As he wills. God arranged as he chose. God has so composed the body. See, in the grand scheme of things, those of you who feel unimportant, God made you exactly as you are. He's gifted you as you are. He's placed you in the body of Christ as he intended. You are needed. You are necessary. And he has a role for you. And those of you who feel too important, God made you exactly as you are, to function with others, to need others who are equally important to accomplish God's will and plan. He's gifted you as you are. He's placed you in the body exactly as he intended, surrounded by other brothers and sisters in Christ who you need, and they need you as well. And the outcome that God intends is our fourth and final point. We'll wrap this up. It's unity or oneness, the same unity we began with. Verse 25, that there may be no divisions in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's amazing that there's, there's no divisions because we all receive the same care. So no matter who's suffering, we all suffer together. 
No matter who's honored, we all rejoice together. We're to be so connected with one another that when, that when one person hurts, we all hurt together. And when one person rejoices, we all rejoice together, from the pastor all the way down to, to the one who takes the trash out every week. All one in Christ. And remember, it's a oneness, regardless of background, slaves and freemen, Greeks and Jews, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, older, younger. We've been brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from the kingdom and the family of Satan into the kingdom and the family of God through Christ, into his body, from all these diverse backgrounds. But because of the transformation that has taken place because of the Holy Spirit, we are, not only, we are all one in Christ. So we have the same care for one another, same honor for each other, rejoicing with one another, and how we serve in the body of Christ. And we're acquainted with one another to the point that when you suffer, we suffer with you. And when you're honored, we rejoice with you. And as I've said for the last two, two weeks, this cannot happen in isolation. It cannot happen if we don't know one another. This cannot happen if we don't take the initiative and talk about our suffering and talk about our reasons to rejoice. Now, as I've been going through this material, I've said before, I, I, I'm a one-string banjo, and I make no apologies, trying to show over and over that as members of the body of Christ, we need one another, and we need to know one another. Now, don't misunderstand me that I'm saying that we have to be engaged in every aspect of, the, of each other's lives, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for us to suffer with each other and to rejoice with each other, some of us need help in our interaction. Some of us need to broaden our circles. Some of us need to open our hearts and let others in our lives and open our mouths to let others know our struggles and our praises. There are some in the church that are always doing that, but we just need so many to do so much more. Beloved, you're the church. You're the body of Christ, united by the Spirit, full of people who have important functions, created and gifted by God's sovereign design, and who are to function as many members in one body, in unity, in harmony, suffering and rejoicing together. We're going to spend eternity together. We might as well start getting to know each other now, don't you think? Let's pray. Father, we are part of a glorious body church that you purchased with your own blood. Father, how thankful we are that you've regenerated us by your spirit and brought us into your family. And Father, I, I do pray that if there's anyone here who's confused about salvation, God, that they indeed would uh, seek you, seek your word, seek counsel, uh, Lord, to get clarity one way or the other. And Father, in the meantime, I just pray that you would unite us in Christ, that anybody here who has ever felt for a moment that, they have, that they're unimportant and, and what they have to offer is, is not enough to even serve because they don't compare to someone else. God, I just pray that they would see that because of your calling them into your family, that they, in fact, have useful gifts for your glory. And Lord, I pray you continue to work in such a way that, that 
we all feel that everybody in here has an important part, an important function. And God, we just ask you that you'd build your church here and, and grow us in depth, Father. And I pray it would expand and grow us in breadth. In Christ's name we pray. 